chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot that the Lord their God, they forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so that the land had rest for forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Amen. All right, go ahead, grab a seat. Uh, and let's pray just for a moment for our time in the Word. Father, we thank you um, that you speak to us. We thank you that you've given us uh, your Holy Spirit to bring these truths to light. Um, God, would you give us sharp minds and soft hearts tonight that we would understand what you have for us, that this would lead us into a greater worship of you. God, would you show us Jesus in new ways and more beautiful ways than we've ever seen. Would you do this tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as Jared said, if you're brand new, welcome. Uh, my name is Andrew. I serve our church as one of the pastors. Uh, and if you have a Bible, why don't you open it up right away uh, to Judges 3. What we just read, Judges chapter 3. We are going to start in verse 7 here in a couple moments. Uh, the last couple weeks, we have been doing or looking at the two kind of introductions to the book of Judges. Okay, so if you've been here both weeks, you've heard us say that um, Judges is structured, that there's kind of a double introduction, and then there's a double conclusion at the end that ties that together. But the main part of the book, uh, most of the chapters, is actually six stories about six judges. All right, so starting today, for the next six weeks, um, we're just going to work our way through the biggest part of the book by just looking at each week the next judge that the book gives us. And so today, we're looking at the first judge, Othniel. Uh, now, before we get into our passage, I think it's probably helpful for us to consider um, what that word, uh, judge or judges, actually means. Right, Because if you're new to the Bible or new to Judges specifically, um, if you've never heard anything about it, I'm, I'm assuming that in our context, when I say a judge, that Othniel is a judge, um, what's kind of the first couple things that come to your mind? It, it's probably something along the lines of an older person in a black robe presiding over a courtroom. Right? Like that's, kind of the, that's one of the first things I'm sure. That's kind of what we think when we think judge. Now, in Judges, these leaders, um, you know, they probably had something to do with the law and order system in Israel. Um, but that's not the fullness of what they were. Uh, to be a judge was, was not just to like be in a courtroom, um, but they were the leaders of Israel. All right? And they were the leaders of the people, but they also had this role to fight on behalf of God's people. Okay, so maybe instead of thinking courtroom, a better kind of picture in our minds would maybe be somebody like George Washington, right? Like he led the army in the war and he was the governmental leader of the people, okay? So, or maybe a, a little more exciting one is think uh, King T'Challa of Wakanda, okay? Some of you will get that, right? So uh, he is both the king of Wakanda 
and the Black Panther. So he both presides and he leads the people, but he also fights on their behalf in war. And that is what the judge is supposed to do. He's got these dual roles of both leading the people, but also being the one who fights for them. So as we've seen the last couple weeks, when Israel gets in trouble because they forget the Lord, they wander from him and they get themselves um, in trouble, they need at that point a leader, a deliverer, our text will say, or a judge. And what we're going to see today and kind of throughout the rest of the book is that the people of God need their judge to give them two things. They need their judge to give them salvation and rest. Salvation and rest. If you're a note taker and you got your little notebook that you're going through this whole series, I would write that down because what you're going to see in each of the six stories is something along the lines of the deliverer supposed to give salvation and rest. And as the the judges get worse, we'll see worse forms of that. But the ideal uh, is that the judge would give them salvation and rest. Uh, Now, one more thing. For us, uh, when we think of salvation and rest, even when I say that to you, my guess is that we don't think of those things too closely together, right? Like for us, when we think salvation, you probably, especially if you've been in the church, you probably think uh, like an eternal action, right? The eternal saving of your soul. And when you think rest, you probably think like watching Netflix after work or like being well rested because you slept well. But that's not exactly what Judges is talking about. When we think of uh, salvation and rest, specifically in Judges, when you see salvation, don't necessarily think eternal salvation, saving from your sins, um, but think as salvation from an enemy or an oppressor. So maybe a a better kind of image would be, imagine you were like a prisoner of war, And so you're in somebody else's country, you're a prisoner of war, and a unit from your military came and raided the place and took you out of the enemy's hands. That would be salvation. And that's kind of what Judges is talking about. And when he talks about rest, again, it's closely tied to that, that he's not talking about like that you just read a book or do some self-care, kind of feel rested. What they're talking about is this like holistic harmony to your life. Uh, Maybe a deep quiet or a calm. I think the NIV translates that word, not rest, but peace. So when we see rest, think uh, the removal of chaos, of hardship, of oppression, that your life is marked by contentment and peace. And if we think of that as salvation and rest, um, just very honestly, as we near the end of 2020, who today can just feel like I need a little salvation and rest? Right, like that, That's just been like this year. And then I think for many of us, we feel the need to be delivered from some sort of hardship, some sort of chaos, something like some addiction, some terrible rhythm that we've got into, that we need a sense of contentment and peace when it just feels anxiety-ridden and like the whole world. And I think what Judges 3 has for us tonight is an offer of salvation and rest. Because what we're going to see Israel get in part, God is offering in full to you tonight. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the judge, and he's going to offer salvation and rest. So if you're in Judges 3, um, we're going to work through the passage in four kind of movements. And I got a graphic up here um, to help us out with this one tonight. 
So this little cycle is called uh, the Judges cycle. So every story that we see throughout Judges, through these six Judge stories, will have a similar cycle to them. It'll be that Israel sins, there's some sort of suffering, slavery, or oppression. Uh, Then we'll see supplication, which means they're like crying out to God, and then we will see salvation, that God saves them. Every story will have parts of that. That's a normal rhythm. And so for us tonight, we're just going to work through those four points, all right? So if you've got a Bible, if it's open, Judges 3, let's look at um, how Israel sins, that first point, by just reading Judges 3, 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Okay, that's essentially just a recap of what we've seen the last couple weeks. Israel was called to be faithful. They were not faithful. Uh, They do what's evil in the sight of God. They forget him and they worship other gods. Now, since we've spent a majority of the last two weeks hitting that verse, I don't want to spend a ton of time here, um, but I do want to ask a question. Uh, When it says in there that Israel forgot their God, what do you think it means that Israel forgot the Lord? So if this whole problem centers on the fact that they have forgotten Yahweh, the Lord, what does it mean to forget God? Again, for us, when we read that, I think we could maybe just naturally assume like, well, that means it like slipped their mind, right? Like to forget something is that you kind of knew something and it just slipped your mind and you don't uh, think about it or it's not kind of in your brain anymore. And so we might say, well, they were worshiping God, but a couple generations later, they kind of just forgot about God and they didn't think about him or know him anymore. And so they worshiped something else. But I don't think that's what's being portrayed here. You see, oftentimes in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we see these two words pop up, remember and forget. Have you guys noticed that? If you've done the Bible reading plan, you're getting through the Old Testament, have you seen those words to remember and to forget? Again, for us, we think, well, that's bringing something to mind or slipping from mind something, Um, but that's just not how the Bible uses it. So for instance, in the Psalms, uh, when uh, David or a psalmist cries out, um, God, remember your steadfast love. What David's not saying is, God, would you think about your love because you have forgotten it? Because you don't remember it, so would you remember it? What he's saying is, God, would you act in accordance to your character of love. To remember something is not just the mind, it's, it's a lifestyle, it's living out of something. Or when, when the psalmist cries, remember not my sins. He's not saying, God, you can forget that, like you just don't even remember it. He's saying, don't act on behalf of my sins, and he's pleading for mercy, right? So to remember is like an action. Well, the same thing is true for the word forget. To forget is to no longer be controlled or driven by what you know is true. Okay, so to forget something is to no longer be driven by or your life to not mark what you know is actually true. How many of us do this just consistently with God? Like maybe we say, um, we don't forget the grace of God. Like we don't forget that that's a piece of Christianity, but we spend so much of our life trying to earn the favor or forgiveness of God, right? That's forgetting the grace. Even though you know it in your brain, you're actually living out of not uh, knowing it. And so Israel here, it says they're forgetting the Lord, which means their actions have now swayed. 
It's not that they don't know the Lord. It's that they, they know him and they are disregarding what he has said for them. And because of that, they start serving these other gods. What we talked about last week was that uh, everybody worships and we always worship, right? So to not worship God doesn't mean you're now neutral. It means that you are worshiping something else. Uh, author David Foster Wallace, uh, in his famous commencement speech, uh, not a professing Christian, he said, there's really no such thing as functional atheism. So this is a guy, not a Christian, but he said, there's no such thing as atheism. He said, everybody worships. The only question you have is what are you worshiping? And that's what we see in Israel. They're forgetting the Lord. They're no longer worshiping him, but that means they are serving another God. So for us, uh, let's just take one moment and I want you to think, consider in the life of our church or maybe in, for you individually, uh, where do you tend to see in your heart where you serve or worship another God? And if, that's, if the idea of a God is hard, just think, um, where do you look to, for ultimate reliability? for ultimate provision, that if you had full trust and reliance in this thing to get you by or to provide something for you, that has in effect become your supreme being, your God. Uh, let me give just a, a couple examples to help your mind get going. Uh, one, I think for us as a people, as a whole church, um, I know that I can feel this personally, We've said many times, we struggle with buildings, right? Like we just struggle with getting a space. We spent time praying for buildings. I think that as a church, we together face a temptation to serve the God of a building. Now hear me out. I think buildings can be great and are useful. However, the temptation for us is to say, well, if we had a building, then fill in the blank. Right? If we had a building, then we'd kind of be a real church and we're not this like homeless group of people. Like if we had a building, then we would actually grow. If we had a building, then we can start doing ministry things. If we had a building of our own, then. Again, a building can be an amazing thing, but if that is what we rely on for the church to grow or be healthy, I think we're in danger of serving another God. I mean, the reality is Jesus promised, I will build my church. And he doesn't say anything about building it because you have a building, right? Jesus says, I will build my church. And it's not because you have an amazing space. It's because the Lord is in it. If we grow today or we grow in 15 years when we have an amazing building of our own, we've grown or we're healthy because of the Lord, not because of a building. Amen. A building can be good, but a building is not ultimate. Now, think for you personally. That's maybe a corporate one. What is it for you? I think this fall, um, <laughs> to be honest, I think it's often that we will look toward uh, a politician, a political party, some sort of institution or organization, and we think if that thing or that person gets in power, then the nation will be right again. Hear me out. 
Government is not bad. Politicians can be good. That, there's a usefulness there. But the reality is no government is going to fix the wickedness in man's heart. Okay? No person or institution is going to be the savior for a mass group of people. They can be good, and there's a usefulness there. But if we tend to think everything will be right again if this person or this organization or this institution has power, we may be in danger of relying on another God. Right, or maybe one more. Um, a lot of us are uh, a little bit younger. We're kind of building our lives. I think for some of us, we can have the tendency to fall into the trap of serving uh, something like either the stock market or some wealth management plan. Right? Have you noticed this? That, that we can think, man, if I just strategize the right way and I invest in this, I am fully reliant on being provided for in the future. That's God's job. It's nothing to do with the stock market or wealth management. Those things aren't bad. They can be useful. They can be helpful. But if you sense in your soul, I am depending fully on this and not God, we're in danger of forgetting the Lord. It could be a job, a relationship, a child, the next step, the removal of hardship, whatever it is in your life where you think, if I just had this, then everything would be okay. Verse 7 says, we're in danger of serving another God. So if that's what Israel's done, and that's where our hearts tend toward, the next step in the cycle, if we can throw it up again, is that once we serve other gods, we will end up suffering at their hands. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Uh, very simply, I would sum this verse up by saying, serving other gods will lead to slavery and suffering. Just point blank. Serving other gods will lead you to slavery and suffering. This is exactly what Jared said last week, right? When we start serving these other gods, we actually find out that they don't bring us life, but they deceive us and they deform us. Israel's sin, they start serving these other gods and they get sold into the hand of a foreign ruler. Now, uh, I want us to notice a couple things about this, okay? One, I want us to notice how the judge's uh, author actually portrays this happening. Because sometimes we can think, well, once I sin, I'm just kind of on my own. And when whatever happens, kind of happens. But you notice that the, there's no doubt who's in control here. How did Israel get put into slavery? The Lord did it. They sinned. They chose to follow this. But the Lord is in control. Nobody snatched anybody out of God's hand. Uh, Barry Webb, in his commentary on Judges, notes that this foreign ruler, who was one of the most powerful rulers of the day, um, still had no more power over God's people than God himself. Here's what he says. This is a carefully measured act of discipline in which the punishment fits the crime. Those who serve foreign gods are made to serve a foreign ruler. Those who do evil are handed over to the one who is wicked. Saying when we serve foreign gods, when we put our hope and trust in them, oftentimes the Lord lets us see the end of that idolatry. And out of love, 
The Lord doesn't let us become satisfied with our gods, but usually we end up being enslaved and we end up suffering at their hands. So same thing, since we hit this point last week, I'm not gonna say much here, but just take a moment and consider. Think about either last week or just today, think through what are those gods? What are the things that we're actually serving, we're relying on, we're trusting as ultimate? And I want you to consider, if you're honest, are you the one who's controlling that relationship or has it started to control you? Think about whatever that God is. We like to think that we're in control of wherever we're putting time, energy, and love, but I want you to think who's actually in control of that relationship. Like if you serve the God of a particular person or organization as your God, have you noticed that over time you've just completely swayed and been influenced to whatever it is that they say or wherever they go? If you serve the God of comfort, like we talked about last week, have you noticed that you're always enslaved to finding more comfort, different comfort? You're never content with what you have, but you're always striving for something better in the future. If you serve the God of approval, have you noticed that even when people approve of you, it doesn't actually satisfy and you need another post or another thing to do or something else to gain a little more approval? Look, don't be fooled. When we serve other gods, we are not in control of those gods, but they end up enslaving us. These things cause dissatisfaction, discontentment, and suffering. And what God does in Judges is he says that he loves us enough to let us feel that suffering, to let us feel the dissatisfaction. And he does that not to rub it in your face that you left him, but he does it so that you could actually look for a leader to take you out of it. And that's exactly what Israel does in this next point. So again, we've seen sin. We've seen their suffering at the hand uh, of an evil ruler. The next thing is that we're going to see their supplication. Their supplication. Uh, read just the first part of verse 9. It says, But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Again, maybe our tagline for this one is, a faithless people cry out to a faithful God. They've been shown to be a faithless people. Yet in this verse, they cry out to a faithful God. Uh, now, commentators and scholars, they kind of disagree here on what exactly is going on in Israel. Uh, do they have a godly grief? Like they're repenting, like they feel bad for their sin and they're repenting to the Lord? Or are they just a people in pain who just want some relief. Now, for a number of reasons, I'm on the side of, of saying that I don't think Israel is actually truly repenting here. Uh, the wording of this and the rest of the story of Judges shows not a soul level turning to God. It seems a lot more like just a people who are hurting and who want some help. So I'd argue when we look at Judges 3, don't see this as a, a deeply spiritual revival type moment where everybody's just turning back to the Lord. See a people not apologetically pleading to the Lord, but just simply crying for help. And that's pretty common. 
But like, think about in your life, like when you go through some suffering, I know for me, when I'm suffering, my prayers like shoot through the roof, right? Like when I can kind of pray little bits here and there. And when you suffer, it's like crazy. You'll pray to anything and everybody. You're just like, you just want relief. I, my uh, youngest son has not slept at night very well for the last four weeks. And I have begged the Lord at 2 a.m. Like I've never begged the Lord at 2 a.m. before. All right, I'm pleading with him for some relief. And here's the reality, that's not necessarily bad. But in that moment, I'm not like seeking the Lord's glory and to treasure Christ. I just want to go to sleep, right? So I'm just kind of crying out, God, would you do this? And I think that's what's going on here for Israel. It's not this, we want the Lord and we want to be with him. It's God, we're in pain. Would you help? Now, here's uh, why this is so important. If that's true, what does God do in response to a faithless people crying out? Well, verse nine says, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. If Israel is not genuinely repenting here, here's what that means. God's mercy and his salvation for Israel was not even dependent on their repentance or faith in him. Isn't that amazing? Like, can you see that, that God saved Israel not because Israel had so much faith. God saved Israel because he is a God of love and mercy. Like that is who our God is. He doesn't even wait for Israel to truly repent. They simply offer a cry and God moves on behalf of his people. So here's why I think it's important for us. And I think maybe there's two groups of people maybe more, but I think we'll kind of broadly fall into two groups. So let me speak to both uh, and just kind of see which one maybe you relate with a little bit more. Uh, so first, if you read verse nine, they cry out to God. It's not a genuine repentance, but they just ask God for help and God answers. And you think, well, so what? Right? Like God is loving. He has to listen to his people. Like, of course he would respond and act on behalf of his people. That's who God is. Can I just press in and say, that we can never assume that rebellious sinners have earned the ear of God. We cannot assume or think so highly of ourselves that we would say a holy God is only holy if he listens to his treasonous creation. That's, that does not make God holy. He can be loving and holy and majestic and right and true and he does not have to listen to rebellious sinners. It would have been right and just for God to say, Israel, you wandered, you served these other gods, and now you've gotten yourself into it. God does not owe them salvation. He does not owe them his ear. We cannot think too highly of ourselves. God does not owe us salvation. Okay, but the second group, if that's not really you, and you listen to this, and you see this, and you think, Man, that's amazing that God did that. Like God listened to a faithless people, but I don't think God would listen to me. Like Israel might be kind of faithless, but I've made a mess of my life. If that's you and you look at this and you think that's a great story, but that wouldn't be my story. Can I ask you, would you identify with Israel here? They've seen God do amazing things and maybe you have too. They at one point worshiped God and maybe you at one point gave your life to Jesus and they have made a mess of their lives. And maybe that's your story tonight. You've come in here and you've made a mess of things and you think, I don't know if God would actually listen. What does Israel do? They simply cried to God 
and God listens. They had no right or no record for God to have to listen to them, but because they cried, God listens. He listens because he's merciful and compassionate. If that's you tonight, I want you to see in the story the mercy and the compassion of God, that he actually listens to those who cry out to him. And if that's you tonight, I would ask you, would you do that? God never says that you've got to clean something up. You have to vindicate yourself before me or before the people here, before God. He simply calls us to cry out for him. And we see it here and we see in Psalm 50, 15, the psalmist, or God is saying to the psalmist, call upon me in the day of trouble. If that's you today, in the day of trouble, here's his promise. I will deliver you. He says, if you call on the name of the Lord, even when you don't deserve it, God promises that he will listen. That's what he does for Israel. And that brings us to kind of our fourth point and the end of the story. Uh, so let's look, starting in verse, um, well, we'll start in nine. We'll read nine and 10. He says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushon Rishathaim. So this is where we see the, the salvation piece of the cycle. So finally, um, I'm like probably 30 minutes in and we get to our judge, all right? So we finally see Othniel. Uh, and what happens is Othniel is raised up by God and Othniel is the ideal judge, all right? So every other judge we're gonna see is, uh, should look just like Othniel. Now I want you to kind of put that in your brain because every time we're gonna see more judges, they're not gonna look like Othniel and that's the point, all right? So he lays out Othniel as this ideal person. In fact, in the whole book of Judges, apart from Joshua, who makes like this quick cameo at the beginning, Othniel's the only man in the entire book who doesn't have flaws. Everybody else is presented to us as a flawed human. Othniel does exactly what the Lord asks of him. So what's interesting about this passage is that Othniel is called a deliverer. And if you've got the ESV, it says that he is a deliverer. If you have a different translation, it might say that the Lord raised up a savior. Because in the Hebrew, the original language that this was written in, the word is the Hebrew word Messiah. See, Israel needed a Messiah. They needed a savior, a deliverer to lead them to salvation and rest. They had their enemies surrounding them. They had no rest or peace or contentment. They were in terrible distress, chapter two said. And the only way that they could receive salvation and rest is if God sent a Messiah. So the Lord sends Othniel. He sends a savior. He empowers the savior with his spirit and he sends the savior into war on behalf of his people. Maybe you can see where this is heading, right? If he's the ideal judge here, uh, we said in week one of this series um, that when we read judges, we should not read judges and think, I need to identify with the judge. I just need to be like the judge. And we really shouldn't read judges and say, well, I just need to be the better version of Israel. Do you remember what I said? Uh, what's the first thing that judges is calling us to? Somebody shout out. What's the first thing every week? Somebody. Nobody. 
Wow, she got her hand raised. No, okay. The first thing that we need to see every time in Judges is that Judges is calling us to faith in Christ. There we go, Debbie. Faith in Christ. And what we see in this story is that to find salvation and rest, God does not call Israel to be a savior, to fight for themselves. God calls them to trust their Messiah. Friends, Judges is simply a shadow. It's a lesser story of a greater story that's at play about how all of us are oppressed by the enemies of the world, our flesh, and Satan, how we're enslaved, not to just certain gods, but we are enslaved to sin and death. And as we turn to the New Testament, we read the Gospels, and what does God do? He sends a Messiah in Jesus. And what does he do to Jesus? He empowers him by his spirit, the gospels say. And what does Jesus go to do? He goes to fight the war on our behalf. You see, everything that the judges is showing us here, that Othniel did, is just a shadow of what Jesus does for us. What they got was salvation and rest for a moment. What we get to receive if we believe in our Savior, if we trust in our Messiah, Jesus, is salvation and rest forever. This is what God calls us to as his people. Now, one final piece of good news. We'll wrap up with this. Look at verse 11. It says, so the land, and that just means kind of the the holistic thing here, the land, Israel, everything. The land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So it says there's salvation and there's rest for 40 years. And then what happens? The Savior dies. And here's why that's important. What Judges teaches us, and it'll happen over and over and over again, is that salvation and rest for God's people will only last so long as the Savior is alive. I mean, look at verse 12. You skim down. What's the very next thing after the Messiah dies? They sin again. What Judges teaches us over and over is that your salvation and your rest is tied to the lifespan of your Savior. Now, for us, why that's such good news is because in Hebrews, it says we have a better rest and salvation because our salvation isn't tied to a human uh, being that will just die like any other human. Our salvation is tied to the one who died and then rose again from the dead. Our salvation is tied to the king who is ruling and reigning today. Our salvation and rest is eternal because our king is eternal. All right, that is why we can have comfort and hope today. It is not because uh, our salvation will only last so long as something in this world. Our salvation is forevermore. Our rest is forevermore. Christian, do not grow weary or fearful that you might lose your salvation, that you might lose your rest, that all of this will overtake you. Your salvation and rest is tied to the lifespan of your eternal Savior. And that is our future. That is our hope. That's what leads us to faithfulness to him because the rest of all eternity, we are tied to Jesus Christ alone. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you would send your son, Jesus, that you would die for a faithless, sinful people. God, we did not deserve you to give us mercy and grace. That's the core of what grace means, that is undeserved. 
God, would we acknowledge that tonight? Wherever there's places in our hearts where we need to lay before you, areas where we in, in our pride think that we deserve this, areas where we are still striving after other gods, areas where maybe we feel enslaved and oppressed and in suffering tonight, God, would you allow us to give those to you? Jesus, would we see you as beautiful and would we see the eternal rest that you have offered us as the greatest treasure that you could give us? God, would you lead us in that tonight? Would you offer us comfort and rest and reprieve? God, would you stir us up to a love for you? Would you work in this moment? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.